it's about this neoliberal uh, capitalist order. It's about the, it's about colonialism. Uh, it's about uh, uh, colonized people in the U.S. Uh, who are, are raising up, rising up, if you will, uh, against their uh, colonizers. So that connection between our struggles and and specifically uh, the the uh, struggles against the settler colonial state of Israel uh, is quite clear. Um, but if if we can shift solidarity in that direction to a point of material joint struggle of learning about each other's um, uh, histories and, and what worked and what didn't work and trying to address the colonial question. Um, we could literally have the whole world afire. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Nora Barrows-Friedman, and my co-host, Asa Wynn Stanley in London. Asa, how are you doing? I'm pretty good, Nora. Um, I hope you're doing well, um, even with the global pandemic pandemic still happening. Um, yeah. It's, uh, it's still yeah. sort of going on. And I don't know, it, it, it feels like... We are in sort of a global moment with revolutionary potential. It it feels yes. like there's lots of different currents and trends, yeah, uh, all sort of flowing together and clashing in one particular moment, which could dissipate and it could just sort of be pushed back and fade out as others have, but it could. I mean, I always think the revolution's coming, right? So, like, I'm always disappointed. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. This one feels it feels a little bit different, right? I don't know. What do you think? It does. It does. Yeah, I think there's a huge convergence right now of so many different factors. Um, you know, the pandemic, uh, the you know, the, like the the tipping point for. Um, uh, the way that um, that policing has been viewed in this in this country, um, I think so many people are finally, <laughs> even though, even though you know, especially as Black people in the U.S. and 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 in Europe uh, have been struggling against state violence um, for hundreds of years. Uh, I feel like the the mainstream is now finally. At a, at a level of like actually recognizing the inherent systemic institutionalized violence that that uh, that the police are that you know they've been set up that way and and this is how the system works so yeah and then here in the US you know compound those two things the pandemic and the black struggle for liberation with um, you know millions and millions of people unemployed, uh, with yeah mass you know, the, unemployment the you know not, and, yeah. and mass sort of uh people being trapped inside during the pandemic has been like a major factor of why yeah. people have been able to come out on the streets i think that's right and it's 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 yeah. it's, it's, it's it has the beginnings or like the kernel of like a genuinely global movement and it's not yes. the thing is it's not it's not only a solidarity movement not to denigrate solidarity movements in any way but um it's 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 not like people black people and uh their sympathizers their allies however you want to phrase that 
in countries like uh, especially Britain, France, um, these you know these centers of former uh, colonial and imperial power yes. with large uh, uh, you know so-called ethnic minority communities, uh, black people, brown people, you know, who are in many instances the descendants of um, the inhabitants of former colonies of these um, imperial centres are demonstrating for their own rights. They're not just demonstrating for, again, not to denigrate any form of solidarity because solidarity and global solidarity is important, of course, as as you know, as we know, and as the centre of what we do at EI. Um, but it's it is of of course like. Uh, black people in London and Paris are demonstrating, yes, in sympathy with George Floyd and the family of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, you know, uh, uh, all these names on and on and on through the years of the last last few years of black yeah. people just being murdered in, in, in the street. Um, they are, you know, it is sympathy and solidarity, but they recognise their own plight, you know? Yeah. Like, so, right. so it, it's, it's, it's not... Um, uh, you know, so uh, p- for example, police in London, um, there's less guns, right? So black people are less likely to be shot down. There's le- police yeah. don't regularly carry guns, but the police are no less brutal. You know, right. it means that black right. people get killed by uh, being beaten. You know, and it, it, there is still police with guns, and and they have ta- tasers and so forth. But you know, I just was seeing uh, a new report came out today uh, that a certain police force. In the West Midlands, where there is um, a large black population, relatively large black population, is black people are four times uh, as likely to um, be stopped and searched by police than white people. You know, and there's just these stark realities of how things uh, are in these in our imperial countries um, has really led to this kind of global movement, and I think that. we're seeing a kind of, like you said, like this kind of mass awareness, awareness and rising of consciousness. Um, and one of the things I think has been a little bit different from the last phase of Black Lives Matter when it first started in 2014-15 has been that in some areas, these protests have been mostly white. Like yeah. the, 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 the statue, the beautiful moment when the statue of the slave trader, Colston, um, when it was toppled the other week, most of the protesters were white, you know, and that's that's the result of long. It wasn't just a spontaneous moment, although there was, you know, it was that too. But um, there was a lot. There's years, literally years, of struggle behind right. the removal of that statue, you know, and none of it worked. Right. And removing it by direct right. action work and dumping it in the docks that was brilliant. Yeah, they quick. It was <laughs> the the. It was quickly resolved by by anti-fascist. Um, you know, anti-racist activists, a years long debate of whether or not to, you know, pull down this statue and whatever that debate, um, wasn't necessary anymore. Yeah. And, and I think that, that spirit, um, you know, and, and of course, you know, the, the Confederate statues all over the U S have been pulled down. Uh, there have been beheadings of Columbus, you know, Christopher Columbus statues around the U S as well. Um, that's a great start, you yeah. know, as, uh, Ajamu Baraka uh, was telling us before uh, we recorded our interview, which which we'll go to in a few minutes. 
Um, you know, what about all of the, the so-called founding fathers of the U.S. Um, who are revered still, you know, by the liberal class, um, who were enslaving people themselves and committing right. genocides against uh, indigenous people here on this continent um, at the same time. And, you know, so, so we have still obviously a long way to go, but this, this spirit is pretty indomitable, right? Yeah. Now. And it, um, the, we have similar, the similar issue in the UK as well with where yeah. um, the, the removal of Robert Colston, um, who is just this, who I think most people in the UK had never heard of before. I mean, I hadn't heard of him. Um, although friends in Bristol um, tell me that that uh, about this campaign that has been going on for a long, long time, and it's ne- it's not just one statue. Like there's a school named after him, uh, and they were going to name a more a shopping centre after him, a mall, and uh, there was a big campaign, and they were forced to <laughs> That's retreat. That's pretty on the nose. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy, yeah. right? I mean, it, that was just yeah. a few years yeah. ago. Um. So, like, like, but. I mean, the point is that this is uh, a pretty unambiguous monster, right? Like he was a slave, he was a slave trader, you know, and there was no, you know, it's kind of easier to make that case. But then there's the issue of people like Winston Churchill, who is a widely regarded um, national figure in the UK, who has this kind of aura of um, uh, invincibility around him, but actually was... Um, yeah. You know, although he came after the era of slavery, if he'd been if he'd been born only a hundred only a hundred or so years earlier, there's no doubt that he would have been a slave trader. Yeah. Um, because right. he's just from that class, and he 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 was quite openly racist and anti-Semitic yeah. um, against you know so-called um, lesser races as he as he. Founded it, and one of his main, one of his most notorious racist statements about not admitting that um, the dog in the manger has any right to the manger um, was in defence of Zionism, which was quite is quite a telling thing. You know, he said that he did not admit that any wrong, great wrong, had been done to the quote unquote Red Indians and uh, the Black Aboriginals of Australia because a superior race had come along to supplant them, and he was saying the same thing that um, white European Jews were coming along to supplant the Palestinians um, and that therefore they were a superior race and they deserved to be supplanted. That's how he thought, you know. So we need to, this is, you know, it's com- in a similar way to um, these conversations about the founding fathers in the, U- in the US, I think quite often in this country, in the UK, we like to think, oh, well, you know, things aren't as bad as in America, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, <laughs> as has been pointed out, like the foundation of American white supremacy comes from the British Empire, you know. Yeah, it's 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 quite a moment right now, and I'm I'm both uh, very excited and also really fearful about the blowback by these imperial states um, on on people and on marginalized and vulnerable communities. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, doing Palestine work for all of these years, um, we see the everyday effects of settler colonial imperial powers on uh, a subjugated and and um, uh, and confined population. Um, 
and you know and and the shared values that that Israel has with the US and the UK and all of these other imperial forces around the world um, only kind of highlights the necessity of moving this kind of movement forward uh, for liberation for everyone. Um, so before we go to the interview, uh, this fantastic interview that we're really proud to bring you um, with Ajamu Baraka of the Black Alliance for Peace, former uh, vice presidential candidate for the Green Party, um, and Christian Davis Bailey, who's uh, the co-founder of Black for Palestine. Um, I wanted to just ask you to update us, Asa, on um, on the, the last couple of stories that you wrote for the Electronic Intifada about um, the new UK ambassador to Israel, or Israel's ambassador to the UK. Uh, and it's confusing, like you, you, you never yeah, quite know it's... which way... <laughs> around they go exactly right there's this exactly. there's this big crossover you're right especially exactly. with the, the u.s um, ambassador at the moment i mean david friedman no relation by the way uh, he's not related <laughs> as, as far as i know um right he he's he's officially the u.s's ambassador to israel but he definitely acts like he's the other way around i mean right. he's actually a, a, a settler right like he has stake in yeah in, in settlements yeah. in, in the occupied West Bank, um, you you uh, exposed uh, this other Israeli official, Zipi Hotov Eli. Um, so tell us about both Gilad Erdan and and this new Hotov Eli uh, character that that we're seeing pop up in official positions now. Right. So I think um, unlike Friedman, I don't think there's going to be this ambiguity there with Zippy Hotavelli. Like she's a real hardcore right wing uh pro settler minister from the Likud party. Um so she's um like she's basically the hard right of the Likud party and she is being <laughs> sent to she it was recently announced that she is gonna be the next Israeli ambassador to the UK and she will replace Mark Regev probably at some point in this summer, but it's, it's a bit uncertain at the moment exactly when. So she's, for for years, she's been um, one of the leaders of the so-called sovereignty movement. So the, the hardcore uh, West Bank Israeli settlers have been arguing for what they call sovereignty to be applied over the whole of the West Bank. And so essentially what that means is that she has, she and her friends have been calling for um, the remaining 22% of historical Palestine to be formally annexed to the state of Israel, but with no rights for Palestinians who live in, the, in, right. in that 22%, only rights for the, the Jews who live in that 22%. So um, it would be you know a, a further formal entrenchment of formal apartheid uh under you know israeli domination um and a, a form of sort of jewish supremacy in historical palestine so it it she i mean she's and she's quite you know it for, for the last few years she's been in in the deputy foreign minister which at certain periods has meant she's been de facto the foreign minister of Israel because, 
you know, uh, uh, the foreign minister was Netanyahu. Who for at certain points he was the, the the prime minister was also the foreign minister at the same time. Really? So she's had quite a lot of power, and it's kind of she's kind of flown under the radar a little a little bit. Like, um, you know, she made a few waves when she entered the foreign ministry in twenty fifteen. She said she made a, a speech to the Israeli civil servants saying, "This land is ours, all of it." Um, and we did not come to apologize for that. And she invoked um, religious texts. Um, and she is, by the way, she's also quite, she's she's a religious Zionist as well. So she's, uh, I spent uh, a week or so watching all of her English language YouTube videos um, on her channel, which she seems quite proud of. Um, and there's some really, there's some really hardcore racist stuff there. And she invokes, yeah. invokes biblical texts you know, um, biblical mythology to say that this, this is the basis of our right to this land. So she says, like, uh, King David established his kingdom here in Hebron, so therefore only Jews have a right to it. Um, and, you know, our father Abraham came here, and therefore that's our right. So this, this kind of sort of extremism is the reason why even some Zionists have opposed her appointment as the ambassador to the UK on not on not because they disagree with anything she's saying, but because they think she will be bad for their image. And, you know, hopefully they're right about that and she she will be uh, bad for their image. Um, but wow. but, you know, I, I'm not so sure. Like Israel gets carte blanche. And I think Netanyahu knows that, you know, he gets carte blanche from the European governments the eu and worse than carte blanche she, they get rewarded israel gets constantly rewarded for yeah. their crimes and there's no yeah, no matter how bad their image is yeah of course <laughs> yeah so i don't right. think i don't think these zionists have, in the uk really have that much to worry about yeah so like one of the people who objected to her on on PR, purely on pr grounds was melanie phillips who's this awful i mean she's a real hardcore racist herself like she's a british um, columnist in the Times, you know the right-wing Tory paper, mainstream Tory paper, and she's just, she's just like the most openly Islamophobic, um, pro-Zionist, uh, racist columnist. I mean, even in the UK, she's regarded as a bit of um, a crackpot to a certain extent. But she has this mainstream platform, um, and Mel even Melanie Phillips said, "Well, this this is a bad idea because." She's a bit much, basically. She said, oh, she sounds like a blustering zealot to British ears. I mean, no, whatever. This is another thing Melanie Phillips is obsessed with. Um, but yeah, but this, I mean, she's basically, she's a, she's a real headbanger. And so it will be like, yeah. it will be a sort of contrast to, to Mark Regev, who, you know, for all his extremism and racism, had uh, a way... Like he was a skilled propagandist, I suppose we could say. Yeah. In a way that I right. don't think she is. So it'll be interesting to see how it develops. And also the last thing to say about her, I suppose, is that she has been, after all these years of promoting the settler movement as an activist and as a, a, a politician, a, a low-level lawmaker, and then later a minister, um, she's now been put in charge of the, a new Israeli ministry, the Settlements Ministry, which will be, you know, is being touted to lead the plan to annex the West Bank. So... 
what she was calling for for all those years, she's now been put in charge of implementing or at least setting up the ministry that will implement it. So we'll see. Well, thanks for doing all of that research. I know it probably wasn't easy watching all of her YouTube videos. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, Yikes. I don't know. It's part I, of the job. It's part of the job. We do it so you don't have exactly. to, listeners, right? <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, and, um, I kind of enjoyed it because it was like, this is, it's, it's, I don't know. It's like this way that we have to get scoops, Nora. Like, I yeah. kind of know no one else is going to do this. So it's like, yeah. <laughs> can get this story <laughs> right. yeah. amazing um and before before uh we head to the interview just quickly tell us uh, an update on gilad erdan's um employment uh he of course has been the head of the ministry of strategic affairs which has been tasked with destroying attempting to destroy the the boycott divestment and sanctions campaigns around the world um Tell us about uh, Gilad Erdan's new job. Right, so, I mean, this is another interesting development, which does relate to um, Zippy Hotavelli. Um, yeah, so so Gilad Erdan has now been, he's concluded his time as the Minister for Strategic Affairs, the anti-BDS minister. Um, and he is also being shipped abroad um, to be the Israeli ambassador to the U.S., and to the UN at the same time, right? Right. So it'll be interesting to see where this develops. I mean, I, I think part of this, of both of these stories, is kind of internal liquid politicking. It's Netanyahu sort of politicking because Zippy Hotavelli was personally recruited uh, more than a decade ago by Netanyahu and he was kind of groomed and raised up. And Gilad Erdan is also perceived to be cl- close to Benjamin Netanyahu. And so they're probably, I know certainly Gilad Erdan, but probably, I mean, I would, th- I haven't seen this touted, but after watching her videos, I could see her as a future prime minister of Israel. You know, she's this extreme right. Um, she's really a Kahanist is what she is with, without being, uh, without the name. Kahanist without without Kahani, Kahani himself. Kahanist and everything but name. Um I could definitely see him as a future Prime Minister of Israel. So they're both probably perceived to be rivals in a way, potential or potential rivals to Netanyahu. Um, and, you know, if they, if they're, I mean, they've both been, as far as I know, they've both been incredibly loyal to him up until now. But, you know, it's, it's probably always on Netanyahu's mind that they could position themselves um, further to the right and outmaneuver him in some way for power, potentially in the future. I don't know. Um, so probably shipping them both overseas is it 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 could be a a way for him to remove them, <laughs> right? But also it could be maybe he's grooming them more. I don't know. Like it, yeah. it could be. I'm speculating a bit here, but it could be like well, train overseas for a right. bit, and then maybe in the future we can see. Or maybe it's both. You know, maybe he's saying that to them, but on the other hand, thinking well, I, and also I get you out of the way, kind of thing. Um, but yeah. We'll see. Wow. Well, yeah, we'll be watching both of those um, ambassadors very carefully, obviously, here on the Electronic Intifada. Um, Asa, thank you so much for diving into that for us. Uh, And let's go to the interview with Ajamu Baraka and Christian Davis-Bailey. 
to talk uh, about the U.S. uprisings and um, internationalizing the struggle of these liberation movements from the U.S. to Palestine. We're delighted to be joined by Ajamu Baraka and Christian Davis Bailey to talk about the U.S. uprisings and Black Palestinian solidarity at this moment. Ajamu Baraka is a longtime human rights activist, scholar, and writer. He's an editor with the Black Agenda Report and is the national organizer for Black Alliance for Peace. Ajamu is also the former vice presidential candidate with the U.S. Green Party. Christian Davis Bailey is a writer, activist, and the co-founder of Black for Palestine. He'll also be publishing a brand new op-ed on Palestinian advocacy and support for the Black struggle here on the Electronic Intifada. Ajamu and Christian, it's so good to have you both with us today on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you. It is so good to be here. Thank you so much. So Adamu, let's start with you. Uh, having you outline this current moment across the U.S. and across the world as people demonstrate and rise up against centuries of unabated police violence and what this has to do with the international struggle against the police state. Um, what are your thoughts as, as you see what's unfolding uh, around the U.S.? Well, you know, it's, it's a very interesting phenomenon. Um, you know, the people came to the streets because, of course, the trigger was the uh, slow uh, videotape uh, execution of George Floyd. Uh, and the target was uh, the police state and policing in the U.S. Uh, and there was legitimate uh, anger uh, expressed. Uh, but you know what? It started to seem to me that... Uh, the, the George Floyd situation was almost like a, a metaphor for the, the pent-up anger, frustration, and recognition on the part of so many, many millions in the U.S. Uh, to the, the notion that none of our lives really mattered. Uh, and so, I mean, as, this came on the heels of, uh, in, and in the midst, if you will, of this uh, ongoing uh, COVID-19 pandemic uh, and the quite clear messaging from the ruling uh, class in the U.S. Uh, that they were more concerned with uh, the economy and, and profit making than the lives uh, and health uh, of the people. And I think people felt that. So, you know, for me, the, the, uh, the uprising is an uprising against uh, policing, but it is slowly, I think, pivoting to an uprising against uh, neoliberal uh, dehumanization. And I think that people around the world are sort of making that connection that and have that understanding even more so than than we do in the U.S. I think that 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 pivot is happening. Uh, but I think uh, when I was doing press a week and a half, two weeks ago, it was quite clear to me. Uh, that people understood that it wasn't just about uh, George Floyd. It wasn't just about uh, policing in the U.S. It wasn't just about something called justice. Uh, it was uh, something bigger than that. It was about the colonial uh, 
system. It was about uh, the structure of international uh, capitalism. It was the, uh, a cry against uh, general, generalized dehumanization. Yeah, Christian, uh, you've been thinking about this a lot as well. Your work with Black for Palestine focuses on making these connections, not just in an ideological or theoretical sense, but real, tangible connections for joint struggle against colonialism and state violence. Um, tell us about your work and how you see this moment as, uh, you know, a, a flashpoint for transformation and, and growth of these liberation movements. Yeah, so... Um... I mean, I, I've been stuck the last few weeks trying to figure out how this moment is different from six years ago um, or seven years ago when Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown were killed, uh, when we saw the uprising in Ferguson, um, the emergence of this, quote, Black Lives Matter moment. Um, and this was even the moment in which Black for Palestine developed and we saw a resurgence in the generations old story of, of Black and Palestinian solidarity. Um, and joint struggle. Um, and um, as Ajam has already said, I, I think this moment is interesting because around the world we've seen a rightward shift um, even over the past four or five years. Um, and so to have these protests for racial justice in the context of the pandemic and, and states failing us across the board, um, it's been really inspiring to see how specifically the, the Black and African diasporas um, have been rising up and, and burning down police stations, tearing down statues of slave owners and colonizers. Um, we saw uh, people in, in Brussels uh, deface the statue of King Leopold, who committed one of the worst genocides in European history uh, in the Congo. Um, so I'm heartened by this moment. And also, uh, it just brings a lot of questions. I think this moment, a little bit more than 2014, um, has a crystal clear focus on the black struggle and black issues. Um, in 2014, during the Ferguson uprising, we also had the last war on Gaza. Um, and so there was kind of a concurrent conversation about Palestine, Palestinian liberation and, and black liberation. Um, but just based on the, the um, just messages, requests for updates, questions about how, um, both Palestinians and solidarity activists can can better support the black struggle in this moment. I, there is a difference in that the focus is on on, on black liberation, um, and we're dealing with questions of how do we move beyond just rhetorical statements of solidarity or or hashtag Black Lives Matter to tangible support for our our community and our struggle. What does that look like? What you know, you mentioned the the Ferguson protests in 2014. Uh, we saw uh, Palestinian activists sending their like best practices for how to deal with tear gas because it is literally the same tear gas that was being fired uh, upon protesters in Ferguson um, that Palestinians uh, are subjected to by Israeli state forces. Um, what does that tangible solidarity look like right now? Yeah, I, I think, um, and I, I speak to some of this in the article that will appear later in EI, um, but there's, there's many practical ways to tangibly invest in Black liberation, um, and it largely centers around actually building relationships with grassroots organizers and organizations wherever you are, but um, also in, in the, the flashpoints of Black struggle, cities like Detroit, or places like Jackson, Mississippi, um, where there's an entire movement for black self-determination. 
So to me, um, I, I think what uh, material solidarity looks like is what people are already practicing in the context of Palestine. Uh, we, there's hundreds of people who spend thousands of dollars a year to go visit the West Bank, to meet with organizers, to volunteer to help farmers uh, harvest olives and defend the land settlers, or to uh, uh, try to defend Palestinians from being evicted or having their homes demolished. Uh, people can invest that same time, energy, and money into um, meeting with, uh, building relationships with, and learning from uh, Black uh, communities and Black organizers. And I think, I mean, so for, for some people, uh, this conversation around Black and Palestinian solidarity is their primary engagement with the Black struggle. Um, or groups like Black for Palestine or Black Alliance for Peace are, are just the main kind of touch points people have with the Black movement. I, I think what this moment requires is moving beyond the groups that are already kind of in direct solidarity with Palestine to supporting people. Um, you know, there's any number of projects. Like in Detroit, for example, there's plenty of, of movements for Black food security and self-determination in terms of being able to produce food to feed the community or, or having sovereignty over land in the face of gentrification. Um, to me, supporting Palestine is supporting uh, 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 Black and Indigenous people fighting for self-determination on this territory. Um, and I, so I, I think what I'm saying here is I'd like to see a shift specifically um, among Palestinian Americans and the solidarity movement to just more intensified and direct solidarity on the ground um, here in the so-called United States. Uh, both of you could uh, could you perhaps talk about what it's been like to see international solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement in the US, and or to, and not just to, I I don't mean just Palestine, but I I mean you know we've seen protests all over the world really. Um, so what what is the meaning of this? Like like you've you've uh, alluded to it somewhat in talking about uh, Christian the the spread of these demonstrations and so forth but and and why is why is it and how it's different been different from 2014 2015 um but why as why did it spread so rapidly um to these you know centers of former uh imperial power well if i could jump in for a second i would i would say that um I mean, there is, there's a very, very interesting question, and I think it's related to uh, what, what Christian said a moment ago in terms of the, the tenor of the times and, and what has changed even from 2014. I would, I would even suggest that the, the period that this reminds me of, of the most um, has to be the, the late 1960s. Um, when there was this, these kinds of expressions of solidarity uh, among and between the uh, Black Liberation Movement in the U.S. Um, and uh, struggles for liberation, uh, anti-capitalist struggles uh, globally, the the what what might be a little different is that um, the the politics may have been a little bit sharper in terms of of it was quite clear and people understood that uh, there was a, a revolutionary process unfolding in the U.S. Uh, and that um, uh, black folks, uh, African people, 
uh, were at the center of that process uh, and that we saw ourselves as part of a global uh, anti-colonial, anti-capitalist uh, movement. Um, and so it's important that in this, these, this moment, uh, as people are standing up and, and standing in solidarity with uh, what they uh, see in, in the U.S., that uh, we try to sharpen the politics uh, so that uh, the same kind of understanding that uh, was uh, uh, present in 1968 uh, might be present today. And what I mean by that is this. We're not struggling for uh, integration, uh, at least not some of us. We're not struggling to, uh, to, uh, to, to win something uh, called uh, justice for some of us. Uh, we see ourselves as part of a revolutionary process uh, connected to uh, all of the colonized people of the planet uh, who are engaged in resolute, uh, 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 ferocious, uh, opposition uh, to this uh, U.S., E.U., NATO axis of domination, to the pan-European uh, white supremacist colonial capitalist patriarchy. That project is the project that represents the enemy of all people. Uh, and therefore, uh, you know, our struggles in the U.S. Uh, needs to be seen in that way. That is not about us uh, wanting to be uh, a good, quote-unquote, Americans. Uh, but that this is an expression, a redeveloping expression of that revolutionary spirit. And that's why the state uh, is so desperate to make sure that that pivot that I talked about earlier does not occur, that they keep it at the level of something called racial justice uh, and even Black Lives Matter, uh, as opposed to that, uh, that pivot taking place and people understanding that it's about this neoliberal uh, capitalist order is about the, it's about colonialism. Uh, it's about uh, uh, colonized people in the U.S. Uh, who are, are raising up, rising up, if you will, uh, against their uh, colonizers. So that connection between our struggles and and specifically uh, the the uh, struggles against the settler colonial state of Israel uh, is quite clear. That's why the work. Uh, the, the Christian and 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 those and folks have been so incredibly important in helping people to understand those connections, using that as an entry point for developing that kind of anti-colonial consciousness. I mean, well, an, another question I often ask myself is, how close are we to uh, a 1968 type moment? Um, and so, Jamu, I I hope that we we I hope we get to that point as, as soon as we can. Um, and agree that there's a lot of work that needs to happen before that. But um, I mean, I, I'm wondering if one of the reasons there's so many demonstrations uh, specifically across colonized diasporas in Europe right now is that the 68 moment was a moment of global uh, uh, quote unquote decolonization or at least at the least anti-colonial movements. Um, and it's been over 50 years um, in some cases for, for decolonization. And so many of us are now realizing that, well, the formal colonialism ended, um, but our home countries and our diasporas are still suffering under colonialism, under racial capitalism, under neoliberalism. Um, and so my hope for this moment is that those politics crystallize across borders in a, in a more serious way. Um, but I think for us 
in the U.S. and specifically within the movement for Black Lives or, or whatever you want to call um, this moment, um, we really have to sharpen our politics around internationalism um, to understand that it's not just an issue of uh, achieving quote unquote justice here. Um, and that even if somehow we're successful in, in defunding the police and abolishing police and prisons, um, that the U.S. military is to the rest of the world what the police are to black, indigenous, and working class populations in the United States. Um, so on, on, a, on a mass scale in terms of organizing, we, we need to see more calls for um, defunding the military at the same time as we're calling for defunding um, the, the police. Right. Right. And and what we're also seeing, you know, especially in social media right now is like a new wave of nostalgia for the Obama years. Um, Ajamu, your work and 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 our all of our comrades at the Black Agenda Report has has always been a powerful force against that kind of nostalgia. Um, people in Palestine remember what Obama did for Israel. People in Afghanistan remember uh, what he did to them. C- can you Talk about what it looks like to push back on this neoliberal nostalgia, why it's important, um, as much as we detest Trump, to to not give former administrations a pass right now when, when we're talking about reimagining um, what community safety and security means uh, at this moment. Well, it's, it's critically important to, to uh, point to the uh, Obama administration in a very critical way because uh, to do otherwise would be to prop up ideologically the the notion that uh, uh, liberals and the neoliberal right uh, represented a real um, uh, difference between uh, the uh, more extremist uh, right that's not in power, represented by uh, the Trump forces. Although that may be controversial, what I just said, but you know, uh, we we want people to understand that the oppression that people experience in the U.S. Uh, is an uh, uh, oppression that is um, uh, uh, administered by a duopoly. Uh, both of these parties represent the same uh, objective class interests uh, in general, um, and that. Uh, for us to uh, pursue a politics that uh, uh, plays right into the hands of the uh, neoliberal right by uh, suggesting that there's some kind of fundamental difference between uh, the neoliberal right represented by uh, Biden uh, and the Trump forces to, to us is a disservice. It, it does not represent the objective uh, interests or perspectives of, of oppressed, colonized African people in the U.S. Because we say, we take the position that on this, the day after the election uh, in this country in November, it does not, it does not really uh, matter who is sitting in the white people's house. Nothing objectively changes for us uh, because we, w- we would not have uh, dismantled the uh, oppressive colonial system. So. You know, we have to engage in that kind of ideological struggle because we do have some very powerful liberal forces uh, that want us to want want to control the narrative, want to make it a uh, a struggle uh, for for racial, so-called racial justice. They want to disconnect it from 
of the, the internationalist perspective, the, uh, the understanding that we're this part of a world system, uh, they want to domesticate it and colonize it. So we have to uh, constantly remind people of the backwardness, uh, the criminality of the uh, Obama administration, because that administration did more than any other administration to completely confuse uh, people, and black people in particular, and it really consolidated a right-wing uh, tendency among African people that we are having to contend with uh, to today. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, how Zionist and Israel lobby organizations are co-opting this moment right now. Um, the Anti-Defamation League, uh, you know, sent out a, a statement, you know, supposedly saying that that Black Lives Matter. Um, APAC did last week. Um, the, the 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 very right wing Zionist um, so called feminist group Zioness um, put out a five page statement using the language of this moment to basically shill for Israel and and talk about how um, how if you support the movement for Black Lives that you must also support Israel. Um, what are both of your thoughts on the way that these right wing um, pro-colonialist organizations are trying to, you know, as, as Jamu, you just said, as to try and confuse people even more. Yeah. So I, I, I want to push back on one thing. I don't think they are co-opting uh, solidarity. I think they're, they're trying to, but it's, it's really apparent that um, yeah. if you support Zionist supremacy and colonization and racism and, and murder of Palestinians, there's no way you can be um, in solidarity with, with our, our struggle and our issues as, as Black people. Um, and specifically as, as someone who is a, a Black anti-Zionist, um, I have been attacked by many of these organizations or, or representatives uh, of them. So it, it, it's very clear, um, both now and in the past, that there's a kind of conditional solidarity with the the black struggle, like we we saw the picture of um, like black radicals and revolutionaries versus the civil rights tendency and, and who supported Palestine and who supported Israel. Um, but we know that groups like SNCC were viciously attacked um, for taking explicitly anti-Zionist and anti-colonial positions. Um, that it, it it's hard to kind of quantify what role this had in the the dissolution of the organization, but it definitely contributed um, uh, uh, to one of the most powerful um, like groups and tendencies of the '60s moment um, to to falling out of power and and existence. Um, so that that needs to be like stated and and very clear when we talk about the legacy of, of Zionist attacks on. Uh, black liberation organizers. I have a question about um, the Israel Lobby USA, the film, um, the Al Jazeera film. Um, I don't know uh, if uh, either of you or both of you saw the film um, Lobby USA. Um, and uh, it's uh, just to, if for listeners who might not have seen it, um, the undercover investigation by Al Jazeera, um, uh, Al Jazeera's investigative unit, 
um, infiltrated one of their reporters into um, the Israel Project, uh, a, a now defunct Israel lobby group in the US. Um, and he went along to um, a conference which was um, attended by Israeli diplomats. Um, and one of them was in the Israeli Consul General in Atlanta, Georgia. And she talked about the, and this, this was 2016. So she was talking about um, Black Lives Matter as a problem for them. Um, and this was, it must have been soon after the movement for Black Lives adopted a pro-BDS platform, a, a platform which included uh, planks in solidarity with the Palestinian struggle. Um, and she said, quote, the major problem with Israel is the young generation of the black community. Black Lives Matter starts there. So it's interesting how I suppose that the rhetoric has kind of, not rhetoric, perhaps their strategy has moved on a bit to, as was stated, um, attempted co-optation, um, uh, at least adopting of the language. Um, and But it, the, in this kind of private setting, actually referring to it as a problem. So, um, Christian, I think I saw you nod in there that you'd seen the film, so perhaps you could talk about it a bit. What what you made of that footage? Yeah, I'm I'm not sure what I have to add um, beyond. I, I think that that period in 2016, not only did the movement for Black Lives uh, endorse BDS, they also stated that Israel is committing genocide against Palestinians um, and is an apartheid state. Um, and the combination of those three things brought a lot of backlash. Yeah. Um, against the movement, like I, I remember, I think there was a supposed to be a fundraiser benefit for the movement in Broadway, somewhere in Broadway, that was cancelled, uh, or the, the venue took back the access to the space based on their position around Palestine. And I'm sure there's plenty of more private instances of that happening that we're not aware of. Um, so I, I think in calling Black Lives Matter a strategic threat, um, which may have been challenged by some groups, but I don't think that's the general kind of position of, of Zionist groups. Um, you can't call a movement a strategic threat and then be in solidarity with it. Um, and, and so that's like the, the, the dissonance that um, I just think it's not going to, to work on, on their end. Yeah, I think that's part of the, 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 the issue, though, is that I think that they are probably very much, um, I think they are monitoring very closely um, the uh, uh, developments uh, within the uh, broader sort of Black Lives Matter movement uh, to see to what extent uh, the uh, stated uh, opposition to to uh, Zionism and support for uh, Palestinians uh, would translate into concrete and sustained uh, actions. And I suspect that they concluded uh, that uh, uh, tactically, they didn't need to move more aggressively on on that element because the work didn't really uh, uh, crystallize. Uh, so then they can fall back to Plan B uh, by you know giving lip service like like everybody else to this notion of, of Black Lives Matter uh, and why they continue to monitor to make sure that uh, that that pivot to a more aggressive. Uh, support for Palestinian liberation uh, does not occur. I mean, they have, 
they have still, you know, they still are, 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 are bringing people into uh, so-called Israel proper on trips. Uh, they're still cultivating a young black leadership. Um, they're still watching very closely uh, Christian. I mean, you know, they, they, they're very much concerned about that pivot <laughs> taking place. So, you know, it is it's an interesting kind of phenomenon, but it's connected to what we, we've been talking about, that it's easy to say Black Lives Matter. It's easy to talk about uh, you all for uh, racial justice. I mean, everybody in the U.S. from the uh, 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 chief of uh, chiefs of staffs of the U.S. military to uh, Lindsey Lindsey Graham has said that they are for uh, so-called racial justice. Um, but it's another thing when you start really challenging the system, and it's another thing when you start reminding them of their support uh, for Palestine, uh, reminding them of their uh, silence. Uh, to the slaughter that took place uh, in Gaza, uh, reminding them that it's the U.S. and the Obama administration responsible for uh, the slaughter in uh, in Yemen, uh, reminding them of their silence when uh, the U.S. and NATO attacked uh, Libya, uh, which was a, a, an attack on the African continent. You know, so, you know, when the politics sharpen, and they will, uh, then many of the people who pretend to be uh, allies today uh, will not only fall to the side, but they will uh, they will go into I think aggressive opposition. Yeah, I mean uh, that that's my hope for um, the crystallization of a, a global anti-colonial political project and movement right now um, is that if we can raise the, the the collective consciousness and general baseline of struggle and demands to the level of we are colonized people still fighting against the system that is exploiting and oppressing us. Um, it becomes much harder for for what the ADL or, or, or Zionist groups are doing in trying to, to co-op solidarity. But I, I think as part of that, um, or what I hope emerges from that, even on the level of, of Palestine, is a pivot away from um, European and white supremacist states and organizations like the EU, Congress, the UN, towards uh, uh, countries who have experienced colonialism, like literally the entire continent of Africa that is bordering Palestine, um, or uh, us as black and indigenous folks in, in the, the belly of the imperial beast. Um, but if, if we can shift solidarity in that direction to a point of material joint struggle, of learning about each other's um, uh, histories and, and what worked and what didn't work and trying to address the colonial question, um, we could literally have the whole world afire at the same time in, in the same way that we saw in the, the 60s. And that's what's actually going to give us um, the, the wind that we need to experience freedom and, and, and liberation. That's the voice of Christian Davis Bailey. He is a writer, activist, and the co-founder of Black for Palestine. Uh, his new op-ed um, is going to be on the Electronic Intifada. So check that out when it is published. And we'll also add a link to it when it's up. Uh, here on the Electronic Intifada uh, podcast blog post. And Ajamu Baraka, um, he's a human rights activist, scholar, writer, editor with the Black Agenda Report, and national organizer for Black Alliance for Peace. Um, and um, you can find him at, on Twitter at Ajamu Baraka. Also, your website, Ajamu, is ajamubaraka.com. And of course, uh, Black for Palestine. Ajamu Baraka, Christian Davis Bailey, thank you so much for being with us and for all the work that you do. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.
Really happy to speak with you. Thank you. And that's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks to Sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant. For news, information, cultural features and reviews and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support the Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening. <laughs>